Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're rolling, so there you go. Hey, and welcome to Going Off Track. I'm Jonah. I'm Brad. And together we are... The Dynamic Duo. Feeling super dynamic today. Punk Rock Podcasts. Punk Rock Podcasting. Brad, how are you? You know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I've spent the whole day trying to figure out if I have a cold or if I have really bad allergies that are... um, Enhanced by a, a hangover. Yeah. You could have both. I could have all three, you're saying. Hangover, cold, bad allergies. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's cool. life. That's life, bro. Yeah. Probably is all three. It should be. Yeah. Might as well be. I, no, Lord knows I've destroyed my immune system. Yeah. Well, I've so, been there. It's just, it's for a good cause, you know? I've been partying for a good cause. Which is what? Uh, to stay sane so I can raise my children. <laughs> Your non nonprofit Brad's kids. Yeah, we had a well that and you know, we had a fundraiser over the weekend for my daughter's school, which was pretty fun. I really didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is an, this is an inside joke to me, but uh, all right, let's move on. All right, anyways. <laughs> uh, today on the podcast we have uh, Jonah. We have me, and <laughs> Don't have me. Uh, our guest is uh, Astronautilus, um, also known as Andy, also known as an old buddy of mine, and he uh, met Andy on the Warp Tour in 2003. He was freestyling. Uh, actually, Jeff, Jeff Rickley and his uh, wife at the time, her girlfriend, future wife, future ex-wife, I don't know, whatever. Jeff and his girlfriend told me, you got to check out this dude in the Code of the Cuts tent, and I saw him, and he was... He was freestyling um, just based on suggestions people from the audience were yelling out. And it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. And it's been cool to watch Astronautilus keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he was in town doing this podcast. He played a sold-out show at Rough Trade. Um, His record was charting on iTunes, competing with Kanye. He beat the the clean Kanye record and was trying to get to the dirty one, trying (laughs) to beat that one too on iTunes. He was at numbers like... Two or three. Impressive. Yeah, so he's killing it. And uh, this podcast was cool. We talked all about his sort of career, how he got into rap. The record's called Cut the Body Loose. It's out now inside One Dummy and sort of the concept behind that. And it's sort of this um, 
kind of traditional way. They do funerals in New Orleans. A lot of it's New Orleans culture based, which is really interesting. We talked about how he got this crazy deal with Harley Davidson where they gave him a motorcycle and he traveled around the world, how he busted his face open on Warp Tour. <clears throat> I was there and had to get metal plates put in. I mean, it's, uh, he's been through a lot. I mean, but yeah, it's been a long time. He's been doing this for, yeah, like 15 years. He keeps getting better. And it's, he's one of those dudes where it's like, He's so good, and it's nice to finally see someone you think is so talented finally kind of break through after trying for so long. Yeah. Like, it's he, like it's one of those things where I was always like, why isn't this guy huge <laughs> for over a decade? And now he sort of is getting huge. Or at and least getting a little bit of it. At least getting a little bit of yeah. it, and it's very validating. Sweet. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, enough enough gushing. Everything good with you, Brad? Everything's fine, other than my, uh, you know... For figuring out my health. Yeah, well... I'll be better. Yeah, we'll troubleshoot that during the podcast. Um, <laughs> we'll give Brad some blood work, um, maybe pump him with some antibiotics, and hopefully in an hour he'll be feeling way better. Oh, and yeah. in the meantime, check out Astronaut List. And uh, cool, here you go. It's going on Just try skimming across the surface of the water. Just go fast enough to make it across. Uh I like it. I think about that sometimes. I'm looking from like my park in Jersey City and I'm like, man, that place is so goddamn close. But it's going to take me an hour and a half to fucking get there. Just need a kayak, man. Like if I could only kayak. You could start paddleboarding to Brooklyn. Yeah, Yeah, no big deal. so easy. Yeah, I really like it there actually. Yeah, I've been there. I do too. It's cool. Awesome. You should come. Yeah, everyone in Jersey City wants you I to know, come out. No, it's, yeah, it's in a like, constant recruiting process. Yeah, but by the time you actually came, it would probably be massively overrun by yuppies by that point. But I think it's so. too late. Yeah, I think you probably got in there real early, but I feel like real estate and rent and stuff, there's probably I didn't get like, in there real early. I mean, with any gentrified New Jersey City, there was the pioneers well before I got there, actually. <laughs> the settlers. Yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, and they're usually always like... Uh, artists in the gay community for yeah. you know some reason looking for cheaper rent and they wound up in Jersey City but that happened in like the late 80s people started started going over there so I was still not allowed to move I moved right. with my parents right well Andy where do you live because I feel like it's always like Andy's <laughs> like well I live in Texas and then people are like well I live in Maine or I live in like Minneapolis I live in Minneapolis now and okay. I've been there for almost five years which okay. is the longest I have lived anywhere since I was 12. So you're from wow. Texas originally? No. no. I was born in Northern Virginia and I grew up in Maryland until I was 12. And I lived in Maryland um, for the most of my life. And then moved to Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. My father's job moved us down there. And then I went to school in Dallas and I lived in Dallas for four years. And then I went on tour immediately after I graduated from college. So I moved in with my parents back in Florida. And I lived in Florida for three years. And I moved to Seattle for a girl, which didn't work out. And I stayed in Seattle out of spite for three years. And now <laughs> I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm the happiest I've ever been. But you're up in uh, Maine a lot or something? No, I'm like, well, I was for a stretch. My guitarist okay. is in Maine. And so when I toured with the band, we used to start. There was a period of time when my guitarist and my drummer were in Maine. So we'd start the tours sort of in the northeast and practice in maine but now i have a new drummer who lives in minneapolis so i just make my guitar stomach ass fly all the way out there gotcha yeah and we met when 2002 i think three first, first world tour i did 2003 my first tour ever 
That was your first tour ever? First tour ever. I graduated from college, had a degree in directing and lighting design for theater, and I was going to be a lighting designer. And then I got asked to go on the Warp Tour in 03 for, I got a 30-minute slot on a tent with no money. Code of the Cuts? Code of the Cuts. And <laughs> it I mean, changed my life, man. And I went out there, We would, me and my best friend, my roommate at the time, he was sick of his job, and we were like, let's just try it and see what happens, and if nothing happens, then we'll just both go on with our lives. And, um, yeah, that was, that was 2003. It's, so how did that happen? Were you like, <clears throat> were you like pushing your stuff and then they just happened to hear it or like just kind of fell nah, into their hands? No, it was just like the guy that opened up for everybody in Dallas, like every rapper that came through Dallas uh, and like, and so, uh, Atmosphere came through and they, I, they, Dallas was kind of one of the first cities where they had a fan base outside of the Midwest. And so they started coming through in 99 or 98. I saw them in 99 in a bowling alley. And nice. then, so I was always just opening up for them. And at the time, they had the these two uh, female DJs like opening up for them. And one of them was a woman named Adverse from Lansing, Michigan. Yeah. And she somehow got involved with... Kevin Lyman in the Warp Tour and set up this weird little hip hop side stage and got a kind of marginal budget for it. And she was just desperately seeking people to go on the tour and we were desperately willing to try it out. And so we, yeah, my, my buddy who was my roommate at the time, who's now my manager, sold his Chevy Impala and bought a Honda Element and we basically lived out of that for the next like three years or so. That's awesome. Just, yeah, like kind of like uh, going through touring, you know, college. Is, <laughs> yeah. Are those hookups like... Uh, how you wound up in Minneapolis through like the Def Jux kind of stuff? No, 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 none of that stuff. Like I ended up, uh, you mean Rhyme Stairs, but um, yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I ne- um, sort of, well, I mean, I guess indirectly. So like on 2004, the Atmosphere brought this dude out to run merch for them and stuff yeah pos and with the promise like you can work merch and you know people drop off all the time slots always open you could probably get a couple of shows out of it and steph was the worst merch person they ever had <laughs> in his entire life because he basically was like yeah totally i'll work merch and spend his entire time trying to get shows right and i remember him coming up to the i was working the ap booth i remember being like i'm gonna be on this tent today i was like oh really and he's like yeah yeah yeah, yeah just <laughs> strangers like yep. he was oh, so enthusiastic about it and he and i met and like i just really we really liked each other we really hadn't i hadn't heard his music and he gave me a sampler cd of his record label this crew doomtree and it was just like astounding like song like normally you get that whole sampler and you're like boy these two people let's focus on them right it was just song after song after song after song and like after that like he played one show and his show was so killer and we were just fast friends from that point on and started working on music together and i started going out there and you know, to work on music with him, and through him, I met um, people from a record label called Totally Gross National Product, which is like uh, Gangs and Polisa and a bunch of other kind of really awesome bands from there. This guy Ryan Olson and this guy Drew Kristofsson, uh, um, and sort of I would go out there to work on music, and it'd be like I'm gonna go for five days work on music, and the next day at time I would go for like I'm gonna go for ten days work on music for five days, stay for five days, and then I was going out there for like two weeks at a time, and finally like. Through that, like basically through Rhyme Stairs, I met Steph and Doomtree, and then that I met Totally Gross National Product, and through that I met like Bon Iver and those dudes. All that whole scene, sort of like right. I was living in Seattle and sort of hating Seattle, and was ready for something new, and was looking at all over the world to move. And I just uh, decided to go there instead, and that was that was all she wrote. I love it there. Uh, nice. I want to back up for a sec. Mm-hmm. What happened? I remember on that tour, mm-hmm. you like 
destroyed your face. 2004, the second one. That was 2004. Story. Okay. So, yeah. I remember Andy coming up to the tent and like it looked like half his face had been ripped off. Yeah, it Goodness was. Gracious. It was. You look great now, by the way. You never know. Thank you. Thank you. I got, it was actually a very clean wound. I got real lucky. By how dramatically you set it up, I'm picturing like it Tommy wasn't, Lee like, Jones. Ripped off. It in was my just head. like I'm picturing Two Face right it's, now. Well, yeah, there was no like vat of acid involved or anything. <laughs> but no, I was on, ironically enough, not ironically at all. That's not ir- irony at all. Um, <laughs> just as a strange coincidence, I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I happened to be Alanis Morissette at the time. Um, and I was on stage with uh, Atmosphere, just f- fucking around because there's a hometown show. Right. Tons of people. We were in the parking lot of the Metrodome. And they had a DJ back then, this incredible human being named Mr. Dibbs out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. And he's a bald dude with a bandana and all on stage all the time. And he had this idea for the Minneapolis show. He found all these like bald caps. And he was like, ah, oh, man, he always staged over in the show. He was like, I'm going to get a bunch of people wear the bald caps and the bandanas. So it'd be like a million Mr. Dibs is diving into the crowd. And so the Warped Tour, as we all know, has like a lot of lawyers. And you can't jump from the stage into the crowd. You have to jump down from the stage to the security barrier, then uh, climb up the security barrier, then jump into the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I followed the rules and I jumped down from the stage to the security barrier. And because it was a hot summer day, they'd been spraying everybody with squirt guns all day. <laughs> my right hand, my hands reached out to grab the rail and they grabbed the rail on my right foot. Um, went to land on the step. My left foot went landed on one of the concrete, and my hands grabbed the rail. And then both the step and the concrete were soaking wet, and they did, my feet just slipped out from uh, underneath me, and my head just went clack on the security rail. I hit so hard that I bounced me back up onto my feet, um, and I didn't know it at the time, but I severed the nerve in my face, this uh, nerve right here, and so I didn't feel anything. And so I was just like, you know, I'm a young guy on this like punk rock tour full of tough dudes and whatever, and I was like, well, I'm, I figured like. I, I was the skateboard. I'm familiar with getting hurt. I figured like I'm have a big goose egg or whatever. And I'm like, I'm not going to not jump into the crowd and have a goose egg. Like I'm not going to have this dumb thing on my face for a week and not jump in the crowd. So I jumped in the crowd and because it's an atmosphere show in 2004. The entire front part of the crowd is just teenage girls. That was a lot of thinking for just banging your head. That I'm was like quick good. on my feet. And, that was good. and so I just, <laughs> I dive into the crowd. Well, yeah, my like, um, my panic mechanism of being considered a pussy would like just kicks in real fast. <laughs> like that, I can think a lot faster that way. If you ask me to spell occasionally, it's going to take me a week and a half. But man, oh man, if like there's some opportunity to be made fun of, then I'm quick. So I jumped into the crowd, and what I didn't know at the time was that my face was split like wide open. Oh. Um, and I land on top of the crowd, and I'm like crowd surfing on my back, and blood starts like shooting out of my head, like above me, like not fucking joking like a fountain and it's like raining down and i'm just like move me to the front move me to the front move me to the front and they move me into the pit and i look and there's literally a girl like covered in my blood like carry on prom night and, <laughs> and like the security guys they're all like that's the stage managers and shit they've all known me because it's my second year they like all usher me off and i like as i'm walking away from this poor girl i just go sorry you know <laughs> and i reach up and i touch my forehead and at this point i now understand that i reach in and touch my own skull wow um they give me a big like towel folded up into like a cube you know and i put it on my forehead and everyone's like running around like crazy and because i didn't i severed the nerve there's no pain wow and so i'm just sitting there and like in the over the course of like two minutes that entire white towel just becomes blood red and there's blood pouring down my face and they go get my you know my manager and he comes over and everyone's going crazy and he comes over and he's just like you all right man (laughs) and i'm like yeah man i think i feel fine and he's like so like yeah, so literally three weeks before, I was bombing down a hill. In um, we went to Cannon Beach. We had a day off after the Portland show. I was bombing down a hill on my skateboard and ate shit so hard, tore my whole side open. Uh. Just like got speed wobbles at the bottom of the hill and just tore my whole side open. My mother made me get like disaster health insurance, like fifty dollars a month disaster health insurance, and thank 
God that she did because it would have cost me like twenty five thousand wow, dollars. Good looking out, mom. So anyway, I get this. So like, I have he's already he's familiar with me being covered in blood for a stupid <laughs> reason. Like it's a thing he's seen this happen a lot. And so like he like he's like you know are you all right man? And I'm like yeah, I think so. Just blood all in my face and my teeth. And I'm like yeah, I think so. And he's like can I see it? And I pull the towel back and he goes whoa. <laughs> and he goes you all right? And I'm like yeah yeah man, I, I think I'm all right. They the first day comes over like yeah, there's nothing we could do. They tape it up. And they're like, you got to go to the hospital. And I go, Where are the, where's the hospital? It's right across the street. And they're like, and they're like do you need an ambulance? And I'm like, nah, I'll, I'll just walk there. And so I, me, <laughs> my manager, who's like a burly, like a tattooed Texan with a bunch of crazy hair at the time. Now it's shaved head. And then this other rapper, ADM, and this suicide girl all walk into this <laughs> hospital. It's a real good joke. <laughs> Sounds like a setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? Yeah, no, totally. And so we all walk into this hospital, and we're all fucking around. We get in, and it's a, the, the dawn of, like, camera phones when they were the tiny little thing that you could plug mm-hmm. into the bottom of your phone. Your phone. So I'm, like, taking pictures and send them to friends without any explanation of this is a like, giant bloody face. And, like, we get in there. The doctor's super cool. It's, he's laughing his ass off. We get the whole wound cleaned up. And he's, like, getting ready to stitch your clothes. And he feels like a bump on my skull. And he's, like, oh. Everything gets real quiet. He's, like, you got to get a CT scan. Uh, I fractured my skull. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I had to go to surgery immediately. And now I have a titanium plate and uh, two titanium screws uh, right shit. there on my forehead ever since. And it's still... There's still some nerve damage and stuff in and around there. Like I touch here and it feels like down here. Um, but uh, yeah, I missed uh, two shows. And what then, was the vibe that day? Like when when you were like, because it sounds like you were pretty like in good spirits and jovial about knocking your head open. Like, did the whole thing just like shift down when he's like, yeah, you crack your skull. I got to do this. I mean, I was probably too stupid to know that it was scary. And <laughs> And, and he was like, and I, he was like, and you have, he explained like you, when you fracture your skull, you have to go in now because the risk of infection, like one uh, bit of infection is in your brain and you can die. Right. And so there was sort of like a, oh, all right, well, this is what we got to do. Like, this is what we're gonna do. Like we're here. And I remember, yeah, <laughs> well, I might as well get the full treatment. Yeah. Um, uh, but I remember going under, I never like, I've never broken a bone before, which is kind of crazy considering all the skateboarding and surfing and stupid shit. But like, I remember like laying in the hospital bed and getting the, putting the anesthesia on me. And like as of just before they like turn it on, they're like I'm trying to explain to these nurses like what my stage name is, and like I'm like oh spelling it out my stupid <laughs> stage name, and they're like all right count backwards to ten, and right as they're like looking at my MySpace, <laughs> and so I hear like right as I'm going under like the first like song of my MySpace play, and then just like done, <laughs> and then wake up like I had a dream that like I had this beautiful nurse like taking care of me, this beautiful blonde nurse. She could have been a beautiful blonde nurse. It could have been just like some you know you know giant Mexican dude or something. I have no idea, but like I was I had a great time, man. <laughs> I had fun. I woke up and I was kicked off the tour. Um, yeah, because some security guard told Kevin Lyman that I broke the rules and I jumped from the stage into the crowd. And then um, I was like, when I woke up, I called my manager. I was like, I'm up. Can you go pick me up? And he's like, yeah. He's like, you're kicked off the tour. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I was like, cool. really? Yeah, and then the time it took for him to drive from the hotel to the hospital, I had been back on the tour because uh, the dudes from Atmosphere all heard that I had been kicked off the tour. And they, because it was their hometown show, had been filming everything. And they went to Lyman with um, all of the video proof that Uh, I did absolutely everything I was supposed to do. And the tour was sort of at fault. And he was like, oh, yeah, he's back on the tour. uh, (laughs) Real quick. So I was like, yeah, he got back. He was like, so I'm like so glum. Like I kicked off the tour and I'm sitting there in the parking lot with a giant swollen face and stitches in my head and like a bottle of codeine. And I was like, oh, this is the worst news ever. And then by the time, like 10 minutes later, Brock, my manager, pulls up and he goes, Chris, guess what? You're back on the tour. It's possible. Let's go. <laughs> but yeah, it took two days off the tour. And it was, I think before that, everyone looked at me sort of like, that white kid that could rap. And then after that, I, like, I walked on the tour in Orlando like 
it was a day off and I missed two shows. It was like three days later. And I had like a stitches all on my face and like a bandana over the stitches and like even like the gnarly, like kind of like, you know, super jacked punk ass, like, you know, um, like truck drivers and shit were just like, what's up, man? Like all of a sudden I had all this unwarranted street cred that was just fantastic. And well, I, I guess your, your instinct to not be viewed as a pussy went pretty well. Yeah, man, those yeah. instincts have kept me alive yeah, this far, well. man, you through hip hop well. and living in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I remember like Jeff. Jeff, mm-hmm. Jeff and, Rickley, yeah, and yeah. Shell were like, they were the ones that were sort of like, you got to check this guy out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, yeah, like going in the tent and it was so, I never had seen anything like that, especially like the freestyle stuff where it'd be like, I was telling about like, Hungry Hungry Hippos and Saddam Hussein and whatever. And it was like, you would make these narratives Yeah. that, I mean, like, what? how did that sort of come about? I was like, because I've never really seen anyone's brain work like that. Oh. Uh, I think it was a lot of practice and like a lot of like teenage loneliness <laughs> and then a couple with a complete like suburban like naivete like I got introduced to rap music I grew up listening to like the Smiths and the Clash and like grunge rock and stuff like that and then like in eighth grade my older brother who was really involved in like the Baltimore like house scene like the early stages of like rave culture there got introduced to that and then got introduced to rap music and he gave me rap music what year was that around I was eighth grade, uh, boy, uh, math, uh, probably like 92, 91, something like that. Um, someone can fact check that how old I, versus how old I am. Um, but like, uh, yeah, so he gave me a tape that had, uh, Lord Finesse's return of the funky man on it. Um, and yeah, so it had probably been 92, um, 92, 93, something like that. Um, and on the B side with like kind of the remaining space, he put some songs from Guru's Jasmine Test Volume 1 Ooh. on it. And like that was the first like, I hated rap music because rap music was like MC Hammer, you right, know? Right, and like, right. the, but there was this whole other world in rap music that was going on that wasn't going to be played on the radio and wasn't mm-hmm. making it down to Jacksonville Beach, Florida. And so he gave me this tape and that like blew my mind. I'd never heard anything like that before. And he told me, and which is true, Lord Finesse is like kind of one of the pioneers of like modern freestyle rap he's an incredible freestyle rapper and like in my own like stupid suburban mind like i thought his album was a freestyle and i thought that's what freestyles Uh, were supposed to sound like and i heard that and like i was a theater kid i was really into improv and stuff like that and so i heard that and i was like well this is like oh this is like improv this is like theater sports or whatever like i can do this and so i decided that i wanted to be a rapper and like for two years i just did it i didn't tell anybody because at the time too like rap was still like outlaw music there was not white kids trying to rap like they yeah. i'm sure there were but they weren't public you know it was maybe just third base and Beastie yeah it's basically third base and busy boys yeah. and then a bunch of jokes right like yeah. and so like ultimately you know snow. yeah your boy snow vanilla ice and all this like <laughs> and so like ultimately like, i remember my mom seeing a bc boys video and her just being like that's stupid and it was the fight for your right to party video it was stupid but like <laughs> right, i was yeah. convinced that my parents were gonna kick me out of the house if i told them i wanted to be a rapper which they're the most wonderful supportive people ever <laughs> but like i thought that i was if i was gonna freestyle it had to sound like the thing that lord finesse had written and so i spent two years trying to sound like that um and then when i just decided to like start to come out and battle kids um I beat everybody. Yeah. And I, it was the first time that, like, I beat anybody in anything. I was a really <laughs> tiny kid. Like, I was smart, but I was not... I mean, I was... I could hit a baseball, but I was not all-star material, yeah. you know? And I was not a fighter or anything like that. And so, like, for the first time in my life, I beat everybody, and I beat everybody. And it was like... I I was in a school, Jacksonville, 
Jacksonville's the South, and so you have kids bust in from different neighborhoods, and so you had kids. And it's a Navy town, so yeah, like I, I beat all the big black kids, which was like a, everyone. I mean, that sound, may sound crazy now at this point in time, and the sort of changing face of rap music or whatever. But at the time, like no white dude was rapping like that, mm-hmm. in like in in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. and. I beat one of them, and then that kid just took me around to all of them and made me battle all of them. And then was like, who is this white boy? Where the fuck have you been? And that sort of changed like everything for me. And so all I did for years was just battle and freestyle. I didn't write songs. Like it wasn't a music. I wasn't rap wasn't a musical or artistic endeavor for me. It was like strictly like a skill or a sport. Yeah, it was yeah. a craft, you know. Sure. And so it wasn't about writing songs or being artful or having emotional connection to anything. And so I didn't write anything for years. And so that's like. It took me a long time to figure out how to write songs. Um, f- being on stage and performing and stringing kind of a narrative out of freestyle, like um, that came easier. And that was like a thing that sort of came out of, I took an idea that a rapper named Supernatural, like a real famous old freestyle rapper used to do, where he used to like, he'd play live shows and have people pull things out of their pockets. And he would like rap about what's in their pockets. But what he would do is he would just be like, someone would pull out a lighter or whatever, and it would just, he would make like kind of one line about a lighter. And it would just be like kind of generic it was really cutting edge at the time, but ultimately, right. like a lot of people have surpassed him. But if someone pulled out a lighter and he'd be like, "All these other rappers are biters. This motherfucker here has got a fucking lighter." <laughs> and at the time, that was like cutting edge and mind blowing. Sure, yeah. And I heard that and was just like really amazed by it and started to do it, but then tried to kind of push beyond it. And so my, I would be like, skateboarding and whatever, and hanging out with kids skateboarding, and they would like give me topics. But then started like I hung out with a bunch of weirdo art kids, and they would give me like, "All right, you got to battle yourself and pretend you're wood in one verse, and then you got to be water in another." And yeah, it was like yeah. really super nerdy, and like you know I went to art school um but that ultimately that was what built into like that thing that i do at the show where i take like five topics from the audience sort of build a narrative out of it do you still do that yeah i do it less and less i do it like kind of whenever i want to yeah which ultimately is most of the shows but not all the shows like if i don't feel like doing it i don't feel like doing it because like i got to a point where i've kind of really grown back to love it but after doing it for so long especially those early tours that you first saw me on probably like two-thirds of my show was freestyling right um because i didn't have any songs you know right. and 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 most people didn't like my songs and like my songs weren't that good and so ultimately uh you know i, I had to fill fill air with something and that was entertaining and that would keep people around um so back in the day would you just you would just run a beat and start freestyling or how would you like set up your show yeah i mean when I was in D- Dallas, like it, I did sort of everything. I had a DJ. I would play shows by myself. There was a period in Dallas. Like, another thing that kind of really got my chops up was like I was going up to Denton every weekend, and I had a full band. Like, and we would just play, and we kind of like that was really where I learned how to perform. Um, they would we would play for like two hours, right? And they would just it would be there was one guy that was a piano player, and then my DJ, and they were sort of the core of the band. And sometimes it would be just them or sometimes it would be them and a drummer and sometimes it would be them and a drummer in a nine-piece brass band i would show up and i would never have any idea who it would be and then i would just freestyle for like two hours mm. and just like rock the crowd and like it was um it became kind of you know a big thing in Denton, texas you know in the in the early 2000s and so that was like my first like fan base um and we went through a bunch of different names and stuff and that was sort of like how it began and once i started touring you know, I couldn't afford to bring a band. And so I started out with just me and a laptop and then eventually had a DJ and then went back to the laptop. And then um, now I have a band. But these tours, you know, it's, I'm doing stuff solo with a bunch of little, you know, knobs and buttons to press and things. Speaking <laughs> of Texas, last time I saw Andy was in Texas mm-hmm. and I was walking. United Nations was playing mm-hmm. and someone was like, do you want to drive to the venue? I was like, no, nah, walk. 
And I was carrying like all my pedals on my guitar, drenched in sweat. And I ran into you, and you like helped me carry stuff to the show. You looked like um, the Texas heat didn't was not something that's. <laughs> I, was, I was probably dressed like this. Yeah, you were wearing all black. Yeah, and it was like yeah. super hot, and you're yeah. carrying all this gear. And it was yeah. just like that's like a. Um, I feel like that's a, a species of animal that exists only in Austin. Yeah, like, that's only like during the, that week. Yeah, like the, the northerner or the, yeah. like the Scandinavian that's yeah, there yeah, yeah. with like a thousand pedals, and it was like an all black, just like the, the doom metal band. And trying to get from you know one taco party to another it's true oh, yeah. it's true I'll, I'll never forget that yeah so no, thank man, you I, yeah for sure Happy i've often been the um the non-appropriately dressed person in hot weather like yeah. a lot in the south that's no, happened to me quite a bit for sure it is a skill set and it took me a while growing up in florida and let me take living my entire life south of the mason dixon line it took me a long time to figure out how to dress for the cold yeah once you got out to maryland that must have been a little bit of a well oh and then now you got minnesota's minnesota is a whole nother level yeah, yeah minnesota is another level maryland's when, still nice when you're doing those um when you do the the five topic things mm-hmm. i mean are you are you when you hear them are you like okay here's like a story arc or here's what i'm gonna do like how much of it is happening actually as it happens and how much is planned while i'm taking the topics i'm starting to kind of file things into like most important least important okay. and like this will be the crux of the thing and this will be a thing that i just kind of pull in you know randomly as like a kind of passing by kind of character but ultimately it's it's at a point now i've been rapping you know since i was 13 or 12 somewhere around there so i've been rapping for 22 23 years you know um and uh it's at a point where it's just a it's a it's like a second language and that's kind of the best like analog to give is it's like it's like speaking extemporaneously in a second language when i started out i was just like you know like anyone learning spanish in sixth grade or whatever and you get to that point where you can you can you know ask for directions to the library or whatever Mm. you get to that point where you can order dinner and you get to that point where you can talk to people and then there's that sort of like magical last step influency where you can talk about kind of ephemeral concepts and speak extemporaneously you don't have to think about the words anymore and so now like rhyming is just like i don't have to think about the words like even like on that, and that was one of the reasons that I stopped doing it so much because, like, I could really phone it in. Yeah. And, like, I didn't, I got, t- I got really sort of embarrassed that I found myself phoning it in. And so that's one of the reasons, like, if I'm just not feeling it, I'm not feeling it. Um, but, like, yeah, so it's, you know, it, it, there is a certain element of, like, improv in there and there's a certain element of just, like, learning technical rap stuff. And ultimately, like, it, it's sort of like, um, like a chess player is able to see moves in advance. And like the, the more and more that I have done it, the further in advance I can see. And so I can be laying down one set of lines and sort of thinking of plot in advance as well too. And then there's sometimes where it's like, it's really calculated and I have to really think it through and I have to really kind of like, you know, work at it. And then there's sometimes where it's just like, I'm blacked out and I'm like going and like, that's, some of the most thrilling stuff for me when it feels there's times when it still feels magic to me um and those are rare those are rare birds but the, it it does happen still but most of the time it's sort of like um it's still a craft most of the time i remember still, I'm thinking mechanically okay i remember getting into an argument with a bunch of people when that um the jay-z documentary came out like mm-hmm. the fade the black one yep and i remember thinking you know i was already a musician by then and i'm like everyone's talking about yo it's crazy that he just steps into the box and like has these songs like yeah and he just like spits them out of his head and i was always thinking that and i'm like like this guy's been rapping like since he was a young guy i'm like that's what he does he's a professional rapper like 
there's no way he's stepping in there with like no idea with none of this mapped yeah. out with like none of these concepts like already like i was in the shower like a couple days ago and i thought of something dope i'm gonna like do yeah like do you like as somebody who deals in that same exact like median do you think he's really like going straight off the dome no he is 100 percent not yeah. and there's a mythology and like and there's so he is essentially what a lot of people do and like and it's something that um, and I, and I, not to discount, I'm not saying it like, I'm not dissing Jay-Z. Jay, Jay, you out there. If you're Yo, Jay's a regular listener. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. if you're yeah, sitting on top of yeah. the Barclays Center right now, counting your money, um, I'm not dissing you. Um, no, you know, what he is most likely doing is he is, he has a bunch of chunks of things in his mind and he goes in and he freestyles sort of over a beat and they'll be like okay that chunk was great mm. keep that chunk and then build off of that chunk okay cool that chunk was great build off of that chunk yeah, build off of that chunk yeah. which is a very like a lot of, like little wayne does a lot of stuff like that and like ultimately it creates a um a, that's like basically birthed a lot of contemporary, what the contemporary sort of rap, pop rap style is that's so loose and kind of flows and switches mm. styles really easily. Um, and I think it's great. I think it's super cool what rap has become sort of birthing off of that where it's less about calculation. It's less about thinking. It's more about like the sonic experience of like patterns and shapes of words. And to me, that's, um, uh, you know, I, I'm as a guy who grew up on worshiping New York underground, like technical rap. Um, I'm really bored with it, and so ultimately, it's super exciting to hear dudes that are rapping just for the sounds. Right, like Young Thug. It doesn't matter what Young Thug's saying. No one cares what Young Thug's saying. No one cares what Future's saying. It's about the patterns and the sounds. It's they're more just musical into, now. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. They're just a guitar, and like they're just playing a bunch of solos, and like that's. It's the same. Rap, like, guitar nerd, like, you know, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, sure. like, culture is the same culture as, like, rap fan culture. Because it's like, I can't believe he did that. Right. Like, it doesn't really matter what he's saying. There's no emotional connection sure, to sure. it. It's just pure technica. And it sounds dope. And, like, yeah. that's cool. That's super cool that that exists to me. But, yeah, Jay-Z is not, like, he's not just, like stepping out of his accountant's office and yeah, rolling straight into the like, booth and just boom. like yep done no yeah. it's it's a thing it's a process yeah it's what? Oh, oh, go ahead uh, so was, it's interesting you brought up new york hip-hop because i had kind of that um that uh kiaros girl music the other day <laughs> where i had listened to daily operation mm -hmm. which is like one of my favorite hip-hop records ever yep, yep. and that record is pretty much premiere yeah running like one straight beat one straight sample through the whole song yep. and guru just telling you a story yep. which i fucking love yep you know and i love i need hip-hop to like paint me a bit of a picture and to sure. tell me a story for me to enjoy it a little more and then i found myself like lost for a long time yep maybe through like some point in the 90s to the early 2000s where I was like, there is nothing going on here that I like. And I was kind of turned off mm -hmm. to hip hop. And then I found myself just listening to the same shit. I just listened to Gangstar and Nas yeah. and Eric B. and Rakim. Everything New York that I liked and that's it. And then recently, like very recently, I found myself like going on Kendrick mm -hmm. and J. Cole, who were big rappers. This yep. is an underground stuff. Nope. But the one thing I'm really noticing about those records is they're like records. Yes. Like song to song yes. to song has like different production. But basically the question I'm getting to is I feel like hip hop has now been around long yes. enough that yes. guys like Kendrick are yes. like 
pulling from different times and different yep. sounds and like starting to create like a more masterful version. To of- me, this is the most exciting rap music has ever been. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you were turned off from rap music. Rappers were turned off from rap music right. for, for a stretch. Like, and you know, there was always good stuff that was happening, but by and large, like there was a period where, man, the good stuff was so few and far between, or the good stuff was just happening in one little area. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool to me about rap music right now. And like people, you know, rappers will want to argue with me about this forever, but like, to me, what's so exciting is there's good stuff happening everywhere. Mm. And it's not just happening in New York or L.A. I'm not just even talking about that. It's not just the difference between pop and underground. It's like there are cool indie rappers right now. There are cool pop rappers right now. There are cool like Young Thug and Future are making some of the most interesting rap music out there right now. But at the same time, you have Future on a Vince Staples record, which is a super thoughtful, intricate, amazing album. And then you have Kendrick coming out. The fact that Kendrick could put out Pimple Butterfly, which is a strange record it's interesting it's a super interesting yeah. record it's a super dynamic record it's not a traditional rap record totally. and it's not a pop rap record you could have that record come out and the world stopped mm-hmm. and then you have someone like beyonce who is essentially looking to dudes like kendrick right now and made her record right. she wouldn't have made that record if it wasn't for ke- people like kendrick yeah. making those records because that like those are the gatekeepers to a lot of stuff yeah, and he's what, like the radio head of hip-hop yeah and what's right super now, cool like, to me is that that exists and at the same time too you have like some of the most interesting rap music isn't coming it's coming from everyone's checking for the F- skepta record from london that's coming right now there's really exciting stuff happening in france and then in america like th- there's a group of kids in minneapolis right now that are all like 17 to 22 that are like used to be spooky black is now named corbin alan kingdoms and all the uh the he's on kanye stuff all the time bobby raps is writing stuff for tons of rappers he's on a bunch of stuff and it's like these kids are like there's the same things happening in miami right now with um uh kodiak black and uh denzel curry like there's these pockets of places that are happening where shit is happening in different places and what's really cool about it too is it's like uh, it, for a while the realm of avant-garde rap music was sort of like owned by la bay area and then weirdo white art dropouts right and that's not the case anymore and for a while like the super good like pop rap was just owned by new york and la and that's Mm -hmm. not the case anymore and for a while rap was just owned by america and that's not the case anymore and what's really cool is it's yeah it's getting old enough that it's starting to really stratify in the way that rock did where you can look like it feels to me like rap feels to me like what rock was going through just at the rise of like American indie when you still had cool bands from the grunge era and you still and you had all these great bands like coming off of K Records and Kill Rock Stars and levels like that. You had this incredible sort of strata of music in rock that kind of you if you wanted rock music with a you know with a Victrola you know sample played backwards, you could always go to Neutral Milk Hotel. Right. Like these things were there for everybody yeah. and that's where rap music is right now. And to me, it's the best time for rap music it's the best and i yeah. as a result like i spent years pushing my own rap music away from rap music and putting in banjos and hammond organs and like giant you know gang vocals and stuff and i this is the reason my latest record is quintessentially the the first rap record i've ever made because in the last two years i've completely fallen back in love with rap music hmm. i really am excited about it again i'm excited about just rapping um which is the thing that like i had after I made my previous record, which is kind of the most rap record I had made at the time, I was thinking my next record is not going to have any rap on it. So and you then, feel like you dabbed outside of the box with your music because you were like a little, not ashamed, but just like bored. you didn't, just didn't want to work in that hip hop yeah, format? Yeah, the construct. And the other thing too with rap is rap is a 
is, and I don't mean this in pejorative sense, but rap is a fat, is fad music. Rap, and that's what makes rap exciting, is that rap changes so quickly. Mm. It changes so much faster, and it, be, it can too because of technical things, because it's mostly made inside of a box, you know? And so it changes so much faster than every other genre, and that's, you know, with the possible exception of dance music, and that's why dance music is starting to supersede rap music. But, like, that's why, you know, if, if one dude comes with a cool style, Future comes out with, like, Dirty Sprite 3, and then now you get Designer. And then you're going to get all these, like, future trickle-offs. They're all going to have a hit around it for a year. Mm -hmm. And then someone else is going to pop up and make the next Dirty Sprite 3, and they're going to have all these people trickling off of that. And so it's like, you can, like, if if you're really nerdy about rap music, you could listen to just, like, some dumb, unknown rapper from, you know, wherever the fucking Virginia, you know, and you could probably pick the year it was made based on who they're ripping off mm. and so at the time like the sort of like when you make rap you, st- you still do have to kind of function in a like a lexicon a little bit and the the lexicon of rap was really boring to me and what was really exciting to me um was everything else like all the bands that i was seeing on the warp tour were exciting to me like all of this like you know you started to get um really super exciting stuff happening in electronic music and things like that and that all became way more interesting to me and so i started pulling away from rap music and i had been rapping for a long time you know it's like someone who's just been doing guitar solos for 10 years decides all of a sudden they want to make a folk record or whatever that's why you know every old rock and roller eventually starts making americana music you know (laughs) um speaking of americana so how did the bonnie ver thing come out and you and sort of how did that kind of transition because i know you you kind of recorded this new record mm -hmm. at his studio as well so i met justin in 2010 which is the summer that i was went i was going to minneapolis all the time that year and that was this when I went to his house and met him, um, that was when I decided I was going to move there, like that trip. And was at, that before he had blown up, or was that it was sort, sort of, of happening right in between? Then? So I listened okay. to like demos of the um, the big record. It was like in the process of demoing that big record, or fit, yeah, yeah, recording that big record. And I went out there, and we it was his brother's birthday, it was Fourth of July, and they had a bunch of people over, and we're all hanging out, and it's towards the end of the night, and it was one of those things, was like it's like 30 musicians out of this house in the country and so we're all like wasted out of our minds and inevitably people start just fooling around and making music and jamming and there's tons of recording equipment and tons of instruments and like so then they're fooling around and then my buddy ryan olson who was in the band jason feathers with me and uh justin um was like andy you got you got a freestyle freestyle phone and so i was like you know sure whatever i'm just drunk enough to, to not be embarrassed and like um and so i freestyle for everybody and like it was one of those things where i'm just like rapping and so they quiet and I kind of like open my eyes and there's like 25 people watching me all of a sudden. <laughs> and so like after that, like I, I kind of made an impression and um, Justin and I kind of hit it off and became good friends. And he was at my, I was living in this crappy little house that um, burnt down a little while later. But like he came by to buy weed from my roommate and we were shooting the shit and we were talking about how both of us are pretty meticulous people when it comes to making a record and how making a record for us isn't necessarily fun. It's uh, challenging and it's rewarding, but like if we lose sleep and anybody who's made a record knows that feeling, yeah. like where it's like it's sort of a nightmare a lot of times. Uh, yeah, I'm not a happy guy. In the no, studio. I'm a miserable yeah. dude when I'm making a record, and so, ultimately I fucking love it. I, it's like sure. solving a math problem or something. It's a great yeah. challenge, but it burns your brain out. And like we were talking about this, and he had, at that point in time, Bonnie Vare had become what Bonnie Vare is. Um, I had, you know, my, I had been touring my record for a while and we were sort of on a little bit of a break, both of us. And he was just like, man, I got some new synthesizers and weird effects processors. You want to come out of my house and just fuck around and work on music? And just in a way that like we never intended to release anything. It was just like, let's drink some fucking whiskey and fuck around and work on music. And he brought my buddy Ryan Olsen out and then Sean Carey, who plays drums for Bonnie Vare. 
and then this guy BJ Burton, who's a really great engineer, and we just basically just pounded through bottles of Redbreast and um, <laughs> made what we thought was like, cool, this is it, this is great, this is perfect. And then we listened to it like a week later, and we we're like, this is definitely not perfect, but there's <laughs> something there. And so over the course of the year, we just sort of worked on that whenever we could, like within and around tours and other jobs and stuff. And so, um, and eventually finished that record. And the whole intent of that record was like that was like it should always be fun. Like if we're not having fun, if there's something that's not fun, then fucking don't do it. And it, you know, and it was never like, a, what are people going to think of this? It was always just like, this sounds awesome to us, and go from there. And as a result, it was I never had had fun making a record before. Hmm. It was the first time I'd ever had fun making a record. It was the least stressful. It was super exciting, and it was just like get drunk and freestyle for eight hours and then piece together. And like that was where I actually first time I started writing stuff in that sort of Jay-Z manner where I'd freestyle uh-huh. like three or four takes and then take the best pieces and kind of assemble it into a thing. Um, and so you would take a good part that you thought was cool and then try to like... Yeah, take a good part. So what I would that. basically do is like I'd, the first day I was there, I freestyled for about eight hours straight and just like freestyle. You play me a beat. I freestyle for like... I'd do like four or five takes on it. they give me notes, do a couple more takes on it, move on. Do the same thing, move on. Do the same thing, move on. And like song, I would like set dibs on a song and be like, no, you can't touch that. I want to listen to it tomorrow. Cause I know there's something in there and I want to edit it myself. And, and how then, much do you trust other people in that process? Like the people in the room of like what's good and bad. So the nature of Oregon, we just talk about Ryan Olson for a second. Ryan Olson created the band gangs. He essentially created the band Polisa and he's responsible for a ton of other projects. He is like a man, very quietly, uh, one of the more important music producers, I think going right now, but doesn't take credit for anything and really hides his face a lot of times. Hmm. But Ryan is the kind of dude, like, I used to live around the corner from him. He would call, he was always working on, like, 20 projects at any given time. And he would, like, call me at, like, 4 in the morning. I'd be in bed and be like, what are you doing right now? I'm like, I had nothing. He'd be like, come over, over. I want you to freestyle on this thing. I'm like, no, Ryan, I'm fucking in bed. No, no, get the fuck up. Come over. <laughs> it's like, ride my bike over there. And, like, just, like 10 seconds later, there's a bottle of whiskey in my hand. And I'm just, like, drinking. And, like, <laughs> he'll just play a beat. And he'll be like, I'll freestyle over it once. And be like, okay, I'll do it slower. And I want you to talk about this. I like, like this cool. guy. And then I'll be like, freestyle once. And be like, okay, now uh, let's switch it up a little bit. And maybe like uh, the way the pattern you're doing on this part, kind of do that for the whole thing. And do that one time. And you go, okay, cool, next beat. And I'm like, you just plot through beats. And halfway through, you'd be like, what is this for? Yeah. <laughs> and he's also in the band called Marijuana Death Squads. I did a song for, with, for them with um, this Chani, who's leading her police. And like, it came out. Like, I had no idea. I don't even remember recording it. Um, and then I came out and then because they, she's really big, her band's really big in the UK, like, it was like being played on like every BBC radio station. Wow. Like, it was the fucking dumbest. I was like wasted out of my mind <laughs> rapping about, about like girls running their hands through my hair. Like it was the dumb, it's the most <laughs> ignorant shit. And like, but that was, that's the process with him. It's like, you don't work with him if you don't just let him do what he yeah, wants. Yeah, yeah. And so that was the process of that whole thing, which is like, and then ultimately we would all like, he would play, you would do a bunch of shit then I'd go outside and just kind of walk in the woods or goof the fuck off or like you know play video games or watch movies he would work then we'd come back down and listen and then we'd give notes and kind of go back and forth like that um, and then you know as the night progressed on and on and on we'd all get more drunk and just stupid and that was some of the kind of the most magical thing but that was the beauty of it it was like I've never been in a band um, I've always been it's you know sort of a benevolent dictator when I work on my own music you know and I work with a lot of people I collaborate with a lot of people but ultimately the decision falls to me um, and that was my first time really doing anything like that and it was a joy. It was the most fun in the world. Um, and you know, you just go back. It was, you're working with people that like everybody respected each other. Everybody really admired each other's work and it was just really easy. And Mm -hmm. the other thing too, is it was low stakes. It wasn't like none of us needed it. None of us were like burning for it, like to be popular. Like it was none, there was no, 
there's no concern about that on any front. Um, I, you know, with that being said, I wish more people had heard it. I, I'm really proud of that record. I think it's one of the best things I've done. Um, and, but you know, it, it, it was a process. I've never experienced any process like that. And then, so when it came to my, my current record, Justin was really kind enough to offer up a studio and a lot of other stuff to make the, my record happen. And so I wanted to make the record in that studio. I wanted to kind of, I was chasing that dragon at that point. And so the guy who works on all my records, John Congleton, uh, worked on my last three. Um, he came up to Fall Creek, Wisconsin, and we just, um, yeah, 10 days of recording out there um, and working with some of the same people, working with some of Bonnie Iver's people, working with some of his pe- John's people from Texas and working with some of my own people. Um, and it was a similar, like, the first time... It wasn't as fun, you know, it certainly wasn't as fun, but it was the closest one of my own records had come to being fun to track. And there was very little stress in it as a result. And I think it was something about, you know, just being in the same place and kind of having, a, you know, the placebo effect of, of environment or whatever, making sure. it all seem a lot more relaxed. What was the deal with, because I remember I was hanging with Mike Weeby a couple mm-hmm. years ago and he was like, dude, you won't believe what Andy's doing. He's got some hookup with Harley Davidson. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like just riding this motorcycle all over the U.S. And I remember we're friends on Instagram yeah, yeah. and like... Every time I went on Instagram, it was like this beautiful motorcycle in front of mountains. <laughs> and like, I was like, what is going on? So out of the blue, this is the, the, probably the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. I was riding, I was on tour with this band Y and we were busting our ass from LA to get to South by Southwest. And on the drive from South by Southwest, I was like, I sleep in the back of the van and my manager's like yelling, like, Andy, check your phone. <laughs> and I like wake up and I look at my phone and it's from the guy that was working my PR at the time. And he was like, do you like motorcycles and i was like i mean i like i'm a guy like some motorcycles are cool (laughs) cool. and i was like i thought you know i thought i've definitely you know i'm a guy so i'm gonna head i mean i was in my 30s at that point in time so i definitely thought maybe i should get a motorcycle you know like i've had that thought and i know what a motorcycle looks like i know a thing or two about motorcycles but like speaking of wind blowing through your hair yeah yeah no definitely just like this the first like um pre-pubescent midlife crisis waves <laughs> starting to wash through my body um like you know i'm starting to like enjoy the company of like hanging out with kids and i'm thinking about a wife and a motorcycle like, that's the process of, like being 32 or <laughs> whatever right. yeah totally <laughs> and so i got this email and harley davidson had contacted my uh, pr guy and asked um if i wanted to be a part of a marketing campaign um where i went around and with a bunch of other dudes that were all doing sort of things interesting in their field in an independent way and we would go around on these trips with them and they would teach us about motorcycles, teach us how to ride a motorcycle. And then uh, in the end, we would get to design and build our own Harley Davidson and they would give it to us. And that was our payment. And I said, well, yeah, duh, of course. Um, <laughs> and it was, well, first of all, I mean, I was living, it's the nicest thing that I own. It's still the nicest <laughs> thing that I own. I don't own a car. I live in a studio apartment. I have a laptop and I have a motorcycle. Like this is the this is the extent. I have a pretty. I have a moderately nice bicycle. Like and I have some cool jeans. Like this is pretty much that's the liquid assets of astronauts. And I own gold teeth. I have sev- a couple of sets of gold teeth. I, this is the, all of my liquid assets. But ultimately, all of those assets added together are still not as nice as the motorcycle that I own. And so they gave me this motorcycle, and I like. I think out of the five dudes that really took to it there was a mma fighter this really great pro skater named greg lutzka really great illustrator this photographer um and me oh yeah me um me and the pro skater are the only dudes that really, really got into it like really got into it and he and i know ride all the time um and so as a result like yeah i got to do this and they would just kind of fly me all over and we would ride motorcycles and um now i have a harley davidson and that's pretty much all i do when i'm not on tour or when i'm not 
recording or anything. It's pretty much all I do. And it's all I want to do. And now I have a second motorcycle. I bought a dirt bike that I'm, my buddy is uh, rebuilding and yeah, that's all I want to do. How does, how does someone who like, isn't an expert on motorcycles go about designing your own Harley? That looks cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, I call so I call my I call I call my friends. I have friends who rode motorcycles that were Harley dudes, and they were like, you know, you're there's a limit, you know, on what you could do to build it. Basically, you're working within Harley's own parts and customizations. And like, I was, I was like, this is what I can do. This is my budget. What should I do? And they were like, honestly, it's not enough to like go crazy and really change the whole thing. Just get what's cool looking. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like. Yeah, cool, awesome. Perfect. And so I got it. Like everyone got theirs black. I got mine like gold, like flake, like a bass boat. Yeah. Like it's like ridiculous. It's so cool. And the funny thing is, is like, um, nothing like that. Like a lot of musicians get a lot of free stuff. Like I'm not at South by Southwest collecting glasses and jeans. Like that doesn't happen <laughs> for me. But I got like the most awesome free thing ever. And I asked him like, how? why me <laughs> like i'm i got fans but i'm not like gonna boost sales you know like <laughs> i'm not really moving the needle that much like, i got fans but i'm not like huge and they said they have all this they had this marketing company this is a, i didn't know this existed and this is a really interesting thing to me and maybe to be other people this marketing company that has all these like proprietary tools um that like crawls the web and they picked from these like web crawlers, they narrowed down these like musicians, social media like feeds, and then started attaching things to our feeds specifically and following us. And they could follow everything that I posted, everyone that responded to my posts, how they responded to my posts, how I responded to their response, the tone, like positive, Holy negative. Shit. Then they could respond like they could follow how long people like how much people clicked on things that I posted, how long they spent on my posts. Really? And they were looking at artists that were way bigger than me. Um, like I got drunk with the people from the marketing company, like and was just like picking their brain about it. It was super fascinating. They were looking at artists that were way bigger than me, and they said, oh, I don't know, but why me? Are we talking like a bot? Like this yeah. is a program? These are programs that they run this, yeah, and then yeah, it gives yeah. them analytics. Right. And so essentially what they, they said, like, they were like, yeah, there was a lot of artists that had more followers than you that like would get more retweets and things like that. But ultimately, everything, like my, what they deduced from the entire process is that my fan base was would look at everything i posted mm. everybody that followed me would look at everything that i posted and they would click on it they would actually look at it they would spend time at it and the other thing they said is that like when they would write me they would always write me super excited and i always write them super excited this is all of no calculation of my own this yeah. is just that i'm a super excited dude and i <laughs> yeah. like things and they were like basically long short of it is like we picked you because you're a nice guy and everybody likes you and that was like and they're like, congratulations for being a nice guy. And I was like, ah, here's a motorcycle. Wow. Finally. Finally. Like, this fucking nice guy's fucking finished first. But yeah, it was crazy to me. I didn't know anything like that existed. And what's that's how, um, if you're wondering how bands get picked for things like that, that there's several companies that are doing things uh-huh. like this. This is how bands get picked like that. They have they have a team of, team of robots that are crawling through the internets, all through the tubes of the internets and analyzing everything and figuring it out. And that blew my fucking mind. And now I'm super obsessed with the idea of like internet analytics. It's really interesting, actually. And it's making me think about like... Because there, there's like a big... I don't know if you're a sports fan at all. Very big. But there's, you know, this battle in a lot of sports yeah. between... The new school of analytics and the old school of the eye test, yeah. kind of. I'm a baseball guy, and so that's okay. it's so no you, more heated than where so you know baseball. all about it. Yeah. So, but the thing that these advanced analytics find are things your eyes don't find. Yep. You know what I mean? It shows, you know, uh, this guy's range goes half an inch farther this way than another guy, or something like that. And all of a sudden, you're starting to see 
value in smaller things than a home run or something like that. And it almost seems comparable to me in the way that like the home run would be like a million followers. Yep. But like the the defensive shift going half an inch that way would totally. be like this unique experience with your fans with this that you wouldn't be able to like quantify before. And I think that that was the thing that they like yeah, and that's the thing that's super amazing to me about it is like it fucking worked. Like they gave me a motorcycle and I like, not only do I love motorcycles, I love Harley Davidson's. Like yeah. I am fully drinking the Kool-Aid on it. And like I ride my motorcycle everywhere and I'm on some American freedom riding through the fucking yeah. Rockies, taking pictures. Like I'm on that shit. They totally. And Skynet knew you would. Yeah, they knew, yeah. They knew I would. They knew I would not have to go oh, back to the future. Line and to high five my past self. To be like, it's going to be so tight. <laughs> Maybe when they put those, that steel in your head, they implanted something. They implanted Uh-oh. a chip and they just activated yeah. like American. American Freedom Motorcycle Dream yeah. Activate. It's yeah, like, totally. It's I'm like fine with that, though. I'm cool with it. Peter Fonda fantasy. Just yeah, man. The singularity like, yeah. is occurring <laughs> in my forehead and on my hog. <laughs> I love that. That's so amazing. Uh, another thing I want to talk about. I did the bio for your new record. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done bows for both of your records. Not a big deal. Yeah, I think just... both for side one. Oh, oh nice. Yeah. Yeah. MBD. Yeah. All right. Hey, man, what a family right here. <laughs> Um, but I f- remember us talking about Cut the Body Loose mm-hmm. and all that stuff, and I never knew about any of that stuff, mm-hmm. and I thought it was so interesting. I was wondering if you could maybe just sort of summarize that and maybe how it relates to the new record. Yeah, sure. So, like, I, um, I, and as you know, um, I tour a lot, um, more than most bands, and I tour in a lot of places that people don't go. I go mm-hmm. to Central Europe and Eastern Europe, and I don't even go, I'll go to major cities, but I also play, like tiny slovak villages and weird like towns in romania that no american band has ever been to part of that is i have really great people that can get me shows like that and part of that is i just want to go to those places and there's no money in a lot of those shows you go there because you want to go there um and so as a result of this like weird touring life that i have i've gotten exposed to a lot of things um that you don't see in america and it's a really, not to get super heavy, but it's a really weird time to be alive, and I think it's a very difficult time to sort of process all the information that we're being given. Sure. Um, and most specifically, I think like um, we're never before as a, like a as a humanity have we been more in tune with the worldwide like web of suffering. For sure. Um, and I think it's a and I think honestly, you know, we could really wax philosophical about this and shoot from the hip but i think it's something that we're not like we haven't evolved to deal with yet emotionally like um there's a lot of reading that i did into this about like the idea of like our brains are still um there's a lot that determines our brain's capacity for socializing and it's based on um uh old like herd mentality we could able to really calculate and quantify information for x number amount of people and then x number amount of people is a very specific number that relates back to sort of pre-humans um and with that being said like we're now being forced to deal with the information and the suffering and joy and 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 emotion and reality of billions of people on a very personal level Mm -hmm. it's not even like reading a newspaper back in the 50s and you'd be like you know something terrible has happened in laos and you go up, yeah. something terrible's happening now. Like and now, now you're, you're watching it. it. Now you're watching it. You're hearing interviews with it. You're listening to podcasts yeah, about sure. it. Um, you're seeing people tweet about it. Everyone's changing their, you know, their avatar to a flag or whatever the hell. And so it's immersive, and it becomes like you can't help but be emotional about sure. these things, even though they have literally no impact on your life directly. And 
Well, they do because of exactly the emotional it's, response. Yes, and they do yeah. this in a completely different way. And so I started to kind of really think about this and like kind of quantify like how how do you find joy and happiness and stability inside of this sort of new paradigm? And I was looking to places like when I would go play in places like Slovakia or Romania, like play Romania, we're playing like an abandoned movie theater. And like most of the people there are like 16 year old like probably two thirds of them are girls because everyone that's old enough to leave Bistritza, Romania has fucking left like as fast as they could. Mm. And so it's like, you're playing this abandoned movie theater on like a PV, like stick PA, like for a bunch of, you know, tweens because that's the scene there. And like, but you know, and, and still they're trying to make it happen. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're not giving up. And I started to see all these examples of people like in really legitimate struggles trying to find joy and try to find happiness and you know in the meantime i you know would see like me and my friends like sort of be like well nothing's going on tonight like like what a fucking asshole thing to say living (laughs) in the in the glory that we have so all this is sort of like kind of ruminating in my brain and i was trying to think of like how you get to this point like i was looking at people that are literally going through ridiculous amounts of suffering people that are our age that have survived civil war like that are still plugging along and still like get they survive civil war and their first thought is we need some punk shows like that's a fucking crazy concept mm. and through all of this through going to new orleans a lot uh, new orleans after katrina a lot i kind of became super obsessed with new orleans and um uh I learned about like I started reading into the ritual of like New Orleans jazz funeral and a lot of rituals, just sort of that sort of thing, grief rituals. And one of the really th- interesting, the, and to me, the most interesting moment in a New Orleans jazz funeral and the ritual of it is is this moment. It's called cutting the body loose. And in a jazz funeral, like there's the actual funeral in the church, and then the body is picked up in the coffin and carried out of the church. The funeral uh, party comes out with the body. And the pallbearers in the coffin go out first, and the, and the funeral comes out, and then there's a band waiting. And when the body comes out, um, the band starts playing funeral dirges. A um, bunch of old hymns, super slow, plodding music, and they very slowly, the entire team, the band, the pallbearers, the coffin, the body, and the funeral party all walk very slowly, soundtrack these dirges to the graveyard. Sometimes it's in a car, sometimes it's in a horse-drawn carriage, but most of the time it's carried. And however long that is. Maybe it's a mile, maybe it's 100 yards. But they do that, and either it goes right to the grave, sometimes it goes to the funeral gates, but essentially it goes, kind of takes the same sort of metaphorical journey. And that journey is a very, like, emotive, cathartic experience, weeping, super heavy experience. And then there's a point where the body reaches its the gates or the grave or wherever, and this is where you cut the body loose. And at that point, the body and the, and the coffin and the pallbearers go on to the grave and go on to actually bury the body. And the rest of the funeral procession, the family isn't there to see the body go in the ground. They aren't there to see the body go in the sarcophagus or whatever, or the tomb or whatever. The family continues on and the band continues on. And when you cut the body loose is when the music changes from the dirge to and saints go marching in. Mm. And this is when the procession ceases to be a funeral procession, becomes a party, becomes a second line. And it becomes this party down the street. And people, strangers join in. Everyone just starts dancing and it becomes just this like dance party down the street in through New Orleans. And that was such an interesting like idea of like grief ritual and coping. But then also just like um, the concept of like feeling such sadness and feeling such sorrow and feeling such pain. And you get to that point where you go and this is the time that we stop being sad Mm. and making it a deliberate action to stop being sad, to stop being kind of crushed under the weight of the thing and go, cool, now we move on. And that was a such a like a that resounded to me in so many ways in like dealing with 
my own problems and my own sadness and my own just kind of day-to-day anxiety and just making like you have to actively decide at one point, cool, I'm not going to do this anymore. And it's like, you know, some people could look at that as like repression. And I don't think that it is. I think it's survival at a lot of times. Sure. And I see a lot of people in places, in my travels, in really adverse conditions, making an active determination to not... they they could allow themselves to be crushed under the weight of their situation and they don't they go on and they go on and they throw shows or they fall in love or they make dance music or whatever the fuck they started you know weird gypsy klezmer band and they fucking hitchhike around europe like you know what they all find a thing and they decide to not be sad anymore how inside of that concept though do you ensure the fact that you're not carrying scars that are going to come to pass again to say like you can make this determination that that i'm over this thing Mm -hmm. but how do you um actively know you're not just putting something to the side rather than dealing with it well i think you got to look at it like it's not um putting it to the side but accepting it as your new reality like this is your new reality and you can't be afraid of it but you have to understand that you can't let it win either Mm -hmm. and so like this i sort of through a complete other happenstance I've done a, I've been lately doing a lot of stuff um thanks to our friend David Lewis doing stuff about like uh mental health issues in music and stuff being on panel discussions and talking to a lot of people about that sort of thing and like ultimately like the core of every solution to mental health issues at the core of it is talking about it Mm. like there's a lot of other things and there's a lot of other theories that branch out in different directions but everyone has this one core that is talking about the thing and to me like that's your safeguard like it's not repression it's not ignoring it didn't happen it's accepting that it happened it's deciding that it's not going to make you sad anymore and you're going to talk about it openly Mm. and i think the i think where you run the risk is that when you when you let it crush you and then you don't talk about it Mm. like a lot of times it crushes you so hard that you can't talk about it anymore and so that's to me that's the fucking dangerous shit sure um it's not dangerous to like just make an active choice towards happiness and i think happiness is an active choice it's an activity um and i and i and i think that you know in that framework then you can find the the strength to sort of you know can deal with the problems as well and i'm not like (laughs) I'm not on some like smiley t-shirt fucking let's all do yoga and deal with our fucking serious heavyweight problems. But it's just um, you get to a point where you, uh, you know, this is the stuff that I've learned from the world that I've seen. You got to get to a a point in your life where you learn how to cope with these things because they're not going to not happen. No, and they start happening with more frequency. Exactly. The older you get, the more More people people die. die. Man, Man, I had three people die in a month last year. Boom, 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 boom. And I didn't deal with it until the last one. And boy, oh boy, it dealt with me. Like it was sure. a solid 24 hours of like uncontrollable weeping. Yeah. And that was a super real thing. And I'm glad it went that way. I'm glad I learned. I'm glad that I was able to do that. Um, but that's a real, it's a real thing. And it gets, it gets more and more real. <laughs> the older you get, yeah. it's fucking life comes hard, man. Yeah, it comes <laughs> real hard. It comes hard in the paint. Gets damn complicated. Yeah, man. It? Totally. Shit totally. Ain't easy. Shit ain't easy. I have a totally separate question that I don't know if you've been asked it a lot mm-hmm. and you may have because you're a white rapper. Go for it. But it's something as a hip hop fan, I struggle with a lot. Yep. And I can seldom get an answer to because it's an inappropriate question to a black guy. Um, is like <laughs> the fact that I hate the N word. Mm-hmm. Let's just put that out there now. Mm-hmm. Like I was raised New York, liberal mm-hmm. Jews. You could have said fuck a thousand times in my house. If you said that, no fucking good. You would have gotten yep. the book, the belt, like whatever, for like sure. fucked sure. up for saying that. 
Now, I've never, I've always understood the empowerment of the word, mm-hmm. but then I am actually more empathetic to the side that wants to put the word to rest. Mm-hmm. When the NAACP like actually had a, a fucking burial service for yeah, that yeah, word, yeah, I, remember that. Yeah. I was actually like, good, I'll good, I want it to go away so bad. Yep. Now, the thing I struggle with a lot now is, let's say, for instance, um, a couple years ago, uh, the J. Cole record, Born Center, came out, mm-hmm. and then a new Cormega record came out at the same time. <laughs> and What a pair. Yeah, exactly. And like I listened to both of these records incessantly where I could sing along to these mm-hmm. records, and I found myself in this weird thing. The Cormega record, I'm flying. I'm spitting mm-hmm. along with them, yep. and I'm having fun. The J. Cole record, I'm censoring myself yep. every fucking 20 seconds where I like literally can't even like expressively emote the music with him because of that. Now I would have no issue with it whatsoever if I wasn't supposed to be buying this record, but I am. And they're making a conscious effort to market to white people and to market to this side of things. But then you're also spewing out something you don't want people to say back. And fundamentally i've never known where to sit on this issue i've always kind of taken a back seat as a white guy being like you know what i'm not going to say the word not my conversation to have yep. but because of my love for this kind of music sure, i sure. find myself crossed and i just i'm wondering your thoughts about it yeah i mean it's a super i'm not going to be able to clear up your your mind on it unfortunately <laughs> it's a, i mean it's a super contradictory and controversial thing and part of me um as like a as a guy who's an academic to a degree there's part of me that is super against censorship of any kind and like the you know the guy that recently re is starting is on this crusade to republish all of mark twain's literature with the removal of the n-word like part of me as a historian as someone who loves history feels like that's fucking terrible because right. you're like changing you're changing history at this point in time. We're whitewashing history. Now, J. Cole is not history, not yet. Mm-hmm. But I, there is that is a super conflicting thing, and it's a weird thing that is divided. You're going to hear a different response, of course, based on race. Um, you're going to hear white people that are going to say, absolutely not, ever. And I have white people, white friends, white rappers, friends that will say, absolutely not, ever. And then people who are like, yeah, whatever. And then you're going to have black people that are going to have both the same view. There's a lot of black people that I know that are just like, whatever, man, it's, it's the fucking lyric. Yeah. But at the same time, you're going to have a, a generational divide, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that word is, in my experience and understanding, and granted, I am a middle-aged white guy. Close to middle-aged white guy. Not quite. We're not I'm quite a, there I'm yet. teetering on the edge yeah, of middle-aged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am upper, lower, middle-aged. We're getting there, fellas. Uh, we're getting yeah, there. Cool. Shit we're is in weird. the middle of, like... A below average life. I mean, it all depends. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah that's true. <laughs> exactly. That's true. It's like, that's we've true. all done enough touring yeah. that, like, post seventy might not happen. So it's, we're we're middle aged. Yeah, we're yeah, about middle aged. Okay, okay, cool. We're in the framework. In music years, we're middle aged. <laughs> there's a there's a different relationship to it generationally too. Mm. Like, it's such an interesting man. Oh man, man. Oh man. Just start like scrolling through social media, and if you fall down a social media wormhole, or like you're looking at like world star hip hop vines, and you see a bunch of like you'll see. White kids just throwing that word around like it ain't mm-hmm. no thing. And I like, grew up with kids like that. Well, just, I grew up in the South. And yeah. like you, I would see 
like I have been called that word by tons of my black friends before. Tons, tons, tons of times. And you will see white kids that just use it flippantly with black friends back and forth. It is my feeling on all of this always is it's always contextual. It's always a case by case situation. And it's always about like manners and public decency mm. and um, intent. I'm yeah, sure, into, absolutely. Right, and sure. it's like just because you say those words in the J. Cole song when you're in your shower does not make you a racist. It makes you a guy that likes the song like uh, there are people who disagree with me on that and they are absolutely right to disagree with me. And of course, like I as a like again 34 year old (laughs) like middle class like lower middle class white dude in america like i am the least light allowed to make a judgment on this but ultimately at the end of the day in my opinion from where i stand and from most people i talk to it's intent it's intent it's a context all that stuff like and i'm really it's a really curious time for a relationship with words and if someone really loves words it's a really interesting thing to see like and what's really crazy is to go overseas and to talk to, like, my black friends in England who, like, think it's hilarious that we care about this. Uh, but it's also because this country didn't have, they yeah, don't yeah. have the relationship that we yeah, have. Right, right. Like, yeah. and, so it's, and so it's very easy for them to say that, like, the French, French black people, like, what? <laughs> like, who cares? Like, fuck those racist assholes anyway. Right. It's just a word. And, like, it's super interesting, like, um, like, a lot of times when I talk about race in America, I have to make a sort of caveat that, like, now look, granted, I have to make that caveat that I made. Like, I'm a, I'm a white dude. And when I make that, like, caveat, when I, like, I worked on this, like, performance art piece and the entire, in London, the entire crew was black women and me. And everybody, after we're done working, we're hanging out, we're talking about politics, talking about race, talking about art, all these things. And we talk about, like, you know, you know all these issues and every time i would make that caveat and they're like you your opinion is something that you're entitled to you don't have to make that like that caveat with us that's stupid Hmm. and that's the thing that you have to do sort of as politeness in america and so our relationship to the to that word and to race is in a it's it's in a weird middle state and it's really interesting to see um just from a historical standpoint and then it's really fucking complex and upsetting from just like a personal standpoint and so like hey man so no answer so you would say say the answer isn't black and white yes oh Oh. Oh. (laughs) damn you're good damn you're good john Oh boy, that was post-racial puns, man! You I did mean, it. Yes, <laughs> so good. Ah, that you're was, so that good was, at it. That was really good. That means a lot right. coming from you. Yeah, man. All right. So that's mad heavy. <laughs> what we were just talking about. That okay. should get real. <laughs> Too heavy, right? Yeah. I mean, so it was good. It was let's talk about something fun. Yes. Okay. So yesterday, Hillary Clinton. Oh says no this is fun <laughs> go on, go fun hillary it. clinton oh, news, good. okay well, that's never I know. been said before <laughs> thing. oxymoron and she says if i become president oh yeah this all all documents that wouldn't infringe national security for ufos and alien cases will be declassified well you can believe that because she clearly doesn't give a shit about what's classified ah good point i mean well, for I just... this one though i mean tell me like like a hundred thousand Trump supporters who don't watch Ancient Aliens didn't perk up their ears and go. Well, Ooh. I just interviewed Tom DeLonge mm-hmm. about aliens. He's, he's read, an alien guy. Yeah, he yeah. just read the seven hundred page book about all this stuff. And to me, it's like I don't think I think she can say that. I think if there's like real, real info they have, they're still not going to release. Still it. can't do. It. It's well, going to be a bunch of like, weather balloons. Still, yeah. Ultimately, it is. 
this is and not to again get too heavy but i'm completely disenfranchised with government right now and ultimately even political like even candidates that i like are saying shit that is absolutely false because oh, yeah. right. like we all forget that there are two other parts to our system one of which is real belligerent right now in our <laughs> congress and senate the house and senate and like those two other parts have a say in all of these things even though executive action has become real fucking rampant she can say that shit all she wants and at the end of the day like if there's something that's really important in there it's not fucking coming and out. also yeah. like especially like this period it's like this election season with people <laughs> campaigning it's like there's no accountability zero like you can say whatever you want zero and then get i'm gonna like, find well, out who killed biggie yeah, yeah i'm gonna yeah. find out who killed Pac. i'm bringing out the aliens all this shit totally. i'm gonna make frank ocean put out his album <laughs> it's all gonna fucking happen hillary fucking 2016 then you get into no, office same. and it's like what about this and it's like oh yeah sorry if bernie had just said that he was gonna make frank ocean put his record out he would have totally got the black vote <laughs> Straight up. That's all he had to do. And everyone would have been like, what? Absolutely. No question. Whatever gets me Frank back. (laughs) Totally. Totally. It's it's so stupid. Is it the media's fault, though? It is, right? Is it Frank Ocean's fault? It's Frank Ocean's fault. Because everybody who used to just, like, spew shit and say whatever they want would get called for their shit, no? Yeah, absolutely. But now it's like, well, yeah, it's all of our, it's everybody's fault. It's everybody's fault. It's also like, even if you want to do something, you can't get the other side to agree to it. So it's like, you're in a state, like, yeah, it's... I mean, that's where, like, I've heard a lot of people, and I don't surround myself with too many Trump supporters willingly. You know, it happens. For sure. By default via family ties or something. But, um, like, the, the one thing that everyone keeps saying is that, yeah, Trump will get in the office. He can't do that much. I mean, there is the executive power to wage war for 90 days without mm-hmm. Congress. That is a big deal, you know? Yeah, it's executive action is a big deal. Sure. And executive action sure. has become a... Re- it's a, man, executive it's, action was a thing that was really, really, like the fires really got stoked under Bush and Obama has gone crog wild with executive yeah. action. And some people will say for better, some people will say for worse, but regardless, like, it's a thing. And it's a thing that ultimately, like, has a significant amount of power for whoever gets in there. And what's weird is that we kind of want that as a people. This is why when we see a, a candidate say they're going to go in there and change things, we want them to go in there and change things. And we sort of want, we're like, we're sort of rooting for dictators at this point. Mm. We're rooting for someone that will come in. Like we're we're romanticizing this the maverick and the rogue. Like that started with Palin, and it's kind of gone fucking yeah. out of control. And even to a degree, like and and I'm. Bernie Sanders is doing the same thing. He's promising a complete overhaul of the United States government. Right. Whether you, no matter what your feeling is about that, he is promising a thing that, like, the only way he's going to achieve that is through executive action, and like, he's not even going to achieve most of that through executive action. And by action. completely alienating about uh, yeah. forty to fifty percent of the country. And at the end of the day, the people that were rooting for him were like, "Yes, we want that one man go in there and change right. things." And like, and that's the same. Who's man? Yeah, exactly. The core of like, as much as we don't want to, like, a lot of people would want to admit that, but the core that is motivating someone to vote for Bernie Sanders is the same core that's motivating someone 100%. to vote for Trump. But it's also just reactionary. I feel absolutely. like they're like, oh, there's a Bush. Okay, now we need the opposite. That didn't work. Yeah. Oh, we don't like this. Now we need Trump because this didn't, Obama yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. work. Like, it's just... Well, you're you're totally right. It's about power, like, at this point. And and I, I did, I read, and I think I've even talked about it here. I read a statistic about Donald Trump where they're trying to, like, quantify exactly who his base is. Mm-hmm. You know, and they can't. Mm-mm. They're getting educated people, non-educated people, different races, different classes, like 
coming together in this weird mishmash that like Donald Trump. And the one tie in they're finding is these people's um, predilection somehow to authoritarian power. Yep. They're attracted to an authoritative personality, someone that they think will go in there and cut through the fat of government and cut through the red tape and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's where, like you said, and it's an interesting point. I, I've been scared of Bernie Sanders the whole time because of exactly what you're saying. I find him divisive and he is divisive just like Donald Trump is. And I would like prefer in my perfect world scenario to find a unifier. Can we all just get along? <laughs> exactly. But, but that's where like Obama kind of tried uh, his first couple years and sort of sat there in quicksand for a couple years. And until he decided to be an asshole, nothing got done. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that was, and it's like a, I mean, I, this is sort of the core of my disenfranchisement is that we're dealing with an issue that's bigger than a president. And we got to blow it up, right? It's so so I got to blow up? Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, kind of. Like, I'm getting there too, man. So like, uh, there's a really good point. This guy, Dan Carlin, I really enjoy. He has a really great podcast. Hardcore uh, History. He does Hardcore History and he does Common Sense. He started yes. and both are, he started out with Common Sense and he started with Hardcore History. Hardcore History is the best podcast it's incredible. in the world. Yes. Um, and then, second best. Yeah, second best. <laughs> After going, it's going off track. Hardcore History, suck at this American life. <laughs> um, and he has started, he has this political podcast called Common Sense and it's, um, it's libertarian leaning by and large because of who he, his nature is. Um, but like he made a really good point. Um, so these people that are voting for Bernie Sanders because they're angry with the way the Democratic Party has become. You know, these people that are voting for Donald Trump because they're angry with the Republican Party has become. And then you have this other weird core of people that would vote for either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump because mm-hmm. they just don't want to vote for anybody that's the current situation. And they're all doing it because they're angry. His point was, do you think, and this was a time when Ted Cruz was still a thing, he was like, do you think if Ted Cruz becomes the next president or Hillary Clinton becomes the next president, that they're going to just stop being angry? Hmm. They're not going to stop being angry, especially those two people who are two of the least likable people. (laughs) Democrats hate Hillary Clinton and Republicans hate Ted Cruz, and they're both were the presumptive nominees. They're not going to stop being angry. They're just going to get more angry and there's only a few ways and historical evidence will sort of show this there's only a few ways that a national anger stops is that either you go to war with each other you go to war with someone else or you elect the guy that you elected because you're angry and he totally bombs the fuck out Uh, and those are the three ways that it has happened and it's happened to us we our civil war, World War One and World War Two. Like we were at odds, we were at each other's throats, and World War Two came along, and then hey, um, and so like there are all a couple. Or, wait, you're forgetting option four, which full scale alien invasion. Full scale alien invasion. Yeah. Independence Day. Will Smith unites the world. Absolutely, as, we know. as one. We get one flag. <laughs> countries are dead. Fucking Randy Quaid dies for our sins. Uh-huh. He's the Jesus figure of the fucking movie, and it's going to be great. And eventually, with a molding of films like this, we nominate someone like Morgan Freeman to be president electorate of all of humanity. Yeah, of right? the, the United Federation of Earth. <laughs> Perfect. Obviously. So we solved that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Done. done. Boom. Yeah, boom. Mic drop. drop. The mic. Out. <laughs> These mics were just not on stands. <laughs> Astronaut list. Yeah. Cut the body loose. Out now on Side One Dummy. 
Uh, I should have said this earlier. He's on tour. He's on tour. He's always on tour. Uh, he, right like now, he's starting on the West Coast when this comes out. Yeah, on the sixth, he starts in Seattle, works to the West Coast. He's in Europe now, and then he goes back to Europe because why not? Why not, man? I would. Uh, more importantly, Brad. Uh, hour later, how are oh you feeling? Oh my god, amazing! I can't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> We gave Brad a bunch of echinacea. Turned it around. I gave him an IV drip of vitamin D. Yeah, that was great. I found these pills in my pocket that were kind of crushed up that I had him take. Those were awesome. Yeah, I don't know what those were. They are fantastic. Yeah, but Brad is looking much better. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks to uh, Andy for coming by. Check out his new record. It's fantastic. If you have the chance to see him live, you definitely want to go. Um and if you want to support this podcast, uh, go to goingofftrack.com, donate a dollar or two, help us pay for our server costs. We have over 200 podcasts available to you for free right now. For free! Uh, leave us a comment on iTunes or good review. That'll help us um, maybe get an advertiser someday, <laughs> in theory. Um, if you want to advertise with the podcast, email me. We could we could whore ourselves out. Yeah, <clears throat> email me at thejonabayer at gmail. We've dabbled in it. We've dabbled. We've had a pod. We've had an advertiser here or there, but uh, it's it's a lot of work. And yeah, and the po- you know just us. doing the podcast itself is a lot of work. That it just seems like one more thing to worry about. Then again, it probably we should be worried about <laughs> it. But hey, uh, if you don't have any money, that's cool. Uh, just tweet at us, whatever. Just tell us you like the podcast, anything. You know, it's a labor of love, but it's nice to get feedback. If you hate it, keep it to yourself. Yeah. Don't really care. Listen to something else. You have a million options. <laughs> I'm not I'm not here. I'm not your sounding board. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm um, good. I'm glad that Brad is still alive. Woo. I'm glad that Andy came by and we will be back next week. So talk to you later. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.